Tonight, uh, we're going to be starting our fifth week in our studies of Hebrews, the better letter. Uh, Our fifth week of this study, it's been very good so far. Uh, I've learned a lot. We've covered uh, the first four chapters of the book of Hebrews thus far. And so far, we have witnessed the author slowly but surely dethroning, for lack of a better term, all of the Jewish greats. All of the Jewish greats in in the height of society in the Jewish culture, the Hebrews writer is just slowly but surely dethroning them and, and, and putting them under the subjection of Christ's greatness. We've seen thus far he has done that to the prophets. We've seen him do that to the angels. We've seen him do that to Moses. And last week, if you were here with us, you remember that he did it to Joshua, the next leader behind Moses. If you weren't able to be with us online or in person, last week we discussed Hebrews chapter 4. And we were able to compare the rest that Joshua delivered the Israelites, the nation of Israel, through the promised land of Canaan. We compared that to the rest that Jesus delivers to all nations through the promise of heaven. Last week we also talked about how the author reminds the Israelites, reminds them of the Israelites who were not able to enter into that rest. Why? Because they did not believe. Why? Because they did not obey. And therefore they were not able to enter into the rest of Canaan. He also talks about how they are about to be guilty of the same exact thing this second go-around with Jesus. They are about to miss the rest that Jesus offers and that this is not one that you want to miss. Last week we also talked about how the Word of God is powerful. It is living, it is sharp, it is piercing, it is a discerner. We talked about the attributes of God's Word. How it is a measuring stick by which we will be judged. In verse 13 it says that we will all appear before this judgment seat of God, that we will all, the Word of God is going to be the thing that discerns our thoughts and intents, whether we want it to or whether we don't. We also talked about how we should respond to the Word of God in our applications uh, period. We talked about how we should allow it to go into, to pierce into the deepest parts of ourselves, into the joints, into the marrow, into the soul, into the spirit. And we should allow God's Word to do that if we're ever going to want to be faithful children of God. Tonight we're going to be starting our study off with where we ended last week. Last week, this uh, is the end of chapter 4. I believe it went along a lot better with what we're going to be talking about this week. So we'll start there tonight as we start our study of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. What an amazing passage of God's Word, is it not? 
This is one of the most encouraging passages you can find in all of Scripture. And later on, we're going to dive into exactly what this passage is saying and what it means to us and how it matters to our lives. We're going to do that at the conclusion of the lesson. But for now, we're going to allow it to frame and introduce our discussion tonight as we look how Jesus is better than the high priesthood. That Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And tonight we probably have the greatest challenge of the entire quarter, if you were to ask me. We probably have the greatest challenge ahead of us that not only are we going to try to cover two chapters of this rich book, like we did a couple weeks ago with the angels, that was a tough one. Not only are we going to be covering two chapters, uh, but we're going to be covering a topic that can be incredibly deep, incredibly uh, weird to talk about. Because we have no context sometimes of, of the things that he's going to be talking about. Not a full, deep understanding of the high priesthood. And this guy named Melchizedek, try spelling that one. Sometimes it's a little difficult for us to understand what's going on when they relate something back to what's going on in the Old Testament because what? Our knowledge is so much focused, so much towards the New Testament, right? That's what makes Hebrews difficult sometimes. Tonight we have a very challenging discussion. And this section of the book of Hebrews, chapters 5 and chapter 7, is where a lot of people get lost in the book of Hebrews. If you're reading through this book and you aren't of, of understanding of what's going on, you keep reading about this guy, Melchizedek, and you're totally lost. That's what happens to a lot of people as they read through this book. But we're going to find and discover that it's really not that confusing when we understand what the writer is trying to do within these two chapters, chapters 5 and 7. The high priesthood has already been mentioned throughout the book of Hebrews, if you've noticed, already twice. So here's the third time in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 and following. This is the third time that the writer has mentioned this high priesthood. If you remember back in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, it calls Jesus the high priest. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, it also calls Jesus the high priest. In chapter 3 and verse 1, it claims he's the high priest of our confession. That Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. In chapters 5 and 7, we're going to see what exactly he's trying to say. He's going to fully explain what it means to have Jesus Christ as the high priest. He's going to fully explain that by the end of this lesson tonight. Before we get into that text tonight, we can't forget the overall context of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to accomplish. Right, We talked about him a second earlier. He's trying to dethrone all of these Jewish greats and make them inferior to Jesus. That's strong language. But we have to realize that that's exactly what his audience needed him to do. Because they wanted to put Jesus equally or lesser than some of these individuals. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, listen, Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Joshua. And tonight, He is greater than the high priesthood. Jesus is better. What do we know about the high, high priesthood? What do we know about the high priesthood with our, our general knowledge, our basic knowledge of the high priesthood? 
You know, there are so many different things that we could look at tonight as we get ready to get into the text. As we get into the, the discussion of the high priesthood, a lot of the uh, ins and outs and the minutia that we find throughout the Pentateuch with Leviticus and sprinkling blood here and there and all the different things that go on with the high priesthood and what they were able to do and what they did for the people of God and the Israelites in that day. But with our constraints in time tonight and uh, our goals of trying to get through two chapters as well as apply it to our lives, we're not going to be able to take a deep dive into uh, what the Old Testament has to say. But what did we say last week about our greatest commentary, our greatest supplemental reading we could possibly have for the book of Hebrews is the Old Testament. I encourage you to go back and look and to read some of that uh, to get a better understanding of what's going on. Fortunately, though, tonight we see that the writer of Hebrews does a pretty good job already within our text tonight of giving us a, a, a bare-bones overview of the high priesthood and exactly what their job was and how they operated and what they did in the law of Moses. We get that at the beginning of chapter 5. So go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 if you're not already there. Go ahead and read the first four verses. It says... For every high priest from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. What does this teach us about the high priesthood already in this beginning portions of chapter 5? As you look up there at the screen, we see that high priests were chosen, were taken from among men, appointed for men. We learn that he must be taken from his own people. We see in Numbers chapter 8 and verse 6 this happening. Numbers chapter 8 and verse 6, that the high priest was chosen from among their own people, their own kind. It's kind of like the President of the United States has to be from America, has to be born from America, he has to represent America, right? Same as the high priesthood. You have to be from the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Levi, right? From his own people, for the purposes of his own people. That's the first thing we notice in this section. Next we see that the high priest is the one who offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. On behalf of who? Well, it says on behalf of others as well as for himself. Why would he need to do it for himself? Well, because he had sins. He had transgression. He had... Uh, sin in his record, so he had to take care of himself before he could even begin to take care of the sins of the people. That's a key concept we need to understand before we get into how Jesus is different. The high priest had to gift and offer sacrifices for sins, and you can look at Leviticus 16 to look at a little bit more of how the high priest did that. 
Next we see that the high priest can have compassion on those who are ignorant and have gone astray, the Bible says. The high priest is one that has compassion. Is that the high priest we read about in the Gospels? No. The high priesthood had been completely distorted and turned into something completely different from its original intent, had it not? You see, the power that the high priest held in the Gospels, it's unreal. But we see that the high priest is one that can have compassion on those who are ignorant and gone astray. Next we see that he's required to offer sacrifices for sins because of his weaknesses and because of others. And last we see he is called by God just as Aaron was. What is the writer already doing yet again in this section of God's Word? He's already showing yet again, here's another one of these Jewish greats, Aaron, that you also hold on so tightly to, Aaron, the brother of Moses, the brother of Miriam, the first what? High priest. Back in the Old Testament. So that's what's going on in this first four verses. He's laying a foundation of what the Old Testament Levitical priesthood looked like. Exactly what they, how they operated and what they did. In number 16, you can see that about Aaron, by the way, becoming the high priest, standing on behalf of God, uh, the people of God. And there's the context we have of this Old Testament high priesthood that we're supposed to go through the descendants of Levi, right? Through the descendants of Aaron all the way to the New Testament where we find them in the Gospels. Now with the rest of this chapter, the writer is going to place Jesus side by side with the Aaron, the Aaronic, the Levitical priesthood next to Jesus and how he is qualified as a priest. We're going to go ahead and start in verse 5 through 6. It says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of of Melchizedek. There's that name, Melchizedek. What's going on in this section? We're going to talk about it in a minute. Let's go ahead and keep reading. Verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. What's happening in these first verse, these, you know, verses 5 through 11 of the book of Hebrews? You know, as we look at it, it might be a little difficult to understand what's going on because, again, he's launching into this discussion of things that we really don't have a good grasp on, especially thousands of years later. But when we understand the context, we understand he, like we said, has laid the foundation of what the Old Testament Levitical priesthood looked like, and now he's laying the foundation of how Jesus Christ 
fits those qualifications as well. He says it right here at the beginning. He says that Jesus was selected from men among his own nation, was he not? Look back to chapter 2 and verse 17. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus Christ was chosen from among his own brethren for his own brethren, was he not? The same way the Old Testament Levitical priesthood was supposed to be. What else did we talk about earlier in laying the foundation? That they were not to take this honor unto themselves, but that they were to be called by God. Well, what do we know about Jesus? We know that God sent him, that God gave him this task, that God gave him this purpose. It wasn't something he took upon himself. It was something that he was commissioned, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago, about him being the apostle, one who was sent, one who was commissioned. Jesus Christ was sent by God. Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He's saying God was the one that gave Jesus this purpose. How? It says he literally begot him to fulfill this purpose. That's what the writer is trying to do by using that text. That Jesus Christ was begotten. He was born to fulfill this mission for God. To become our high priest. And according to who? It says according to the order of of Melchizedek, verse 6. What's the difference between Jesus' priesthood and the Levitical priesthood? The word forever. Look at this verse right here. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. How many of the Old Testament priests, high priests, were priests forever? Annas and Caiaphas wanted to be, right, in the Gospels, but they couldn't be it forever. Jesus Christ is high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God was the one who said that. In the book of Psalms 110, we see God was the one saying this about Jesus, that one day he was going to be priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood of Aaron was temporary, and the priesthood of Jesus is forever. But what did Jesus do, though? What did Jesus do to become high priest? How does he operate as high priest? We know what the Old Testament Levitical priesthood did. We know that they sprinkled blood on the, on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. They were able to enter into the Holy of Holies, right? When did Jesus ever do that, some might say? Well, it says Jesus offered up prayers. He offered up supplications. He cried vehemently. He was heard because of his godly fear. He suffered on our behalf, the text says. What else does it say? Well, it doesn't say it up front or blatantly, but I believe it's obvious that Jesus was the one who sprinkled his own blood on the sacrifice altar. Jesus Christ was the one who shed his own blood. He didn't offer sacrifices. He offered himself. Jesus Christ was the one who tore down the veil so that all of us could be in the Holy of Holies and all of us could be the dwelling place of God. Jesus Christ was the one who did that. 
because of this, because of these qualifications, because of all the things that Jesus did in this passage, what does it say about him? It says that he has been perfected, that he has become the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Boy, is this not just like a pump-up speech? If you understand what's going on, to me this is just a pump-up speech. All the things that Jesus Christ has done, all the, all the things that He has put behind, all the things that He has defeated, as soon as I'm ready to run through a brick wall, what does the writer of Hebrews do? He kind of slams on the brakes, does he not? He's explaining, he's explaining, he's preaching, he's preaching, and then all of a sudden he slams on the brakes. Why? Well, it says, because they have become dull of hearing. Verse 11. They have become dull of hearing. Of whom we have much to say and hard to understand, since you have become dull of hearing. What does he say after this? In what way had they become dull of hearing? Look, look at verses 12 through 14 together. It says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to the need of milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and and evil. The writer of Hebrews is trying to say, listen, you've been in the church for years. It's likely that they had all been in the church, most of them, for years at this point. And instead of having the ability to teach others, they were still needing to be the students. They were there listening to all of the lessons, they're listening to all the sermons, all of the lessons that were given from all the apostles and all the leaders of the church, but yet they weren't ready to go on to the meat. They were still stuck on the milk. And so he says, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You're not ready for solid food. You haven't exercised your spirituality to be able to discern good and evil yet. It's like the writer of Hebrews understands this is some deep discussion about the high priesthood, right? He's like, listen, I would keep going on this. I would continue to talk about how Jesus Christ is the high priest, but you're not ready for it yet. You can't discern good from evil. How am I going to explain to you how Jesus Christ is our high priest? Because they had not progressed. They had not progressed in their faith, in their walk with God. They were still drinking milk instead of eating meat. He's saying you're not ready for this. Why weren't they ready? Verses chapter 4 and verse 12. What we talked about last week. They weren't reading into the Word of God and allowing it to go into the deepest portions of their soul and their spirit. And the Word of God discerned that intent and thought, just like we talked about last week. 
And that's where chapter 5 ends. Can you believe it? Chapter 5 ends on that totally uh, you know, depressing note, totally devoid of any type of resolution. And if you just stop right there, it would be very depressing, would it not? Chapter 6 continues to talk about, guess what? All the things they needed to catch up on. All the things that they needed to review of, what they needed to be, have already understood. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, actually. We're going to talk about all that that happens in chapter 6 next week. But our conversation tonight about the high priesthood picks back up in chapter 7. Go ahead and turn over there. Chapter 7. So again, in chapter 5, he's going on this, uh, on this rant about Jesus Christ is the high priest. And then he has to take a moment to breathe and explain a little bit more the first principles of the oracles of God in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, he goes right back at it, discussing Jesus as the high priest. Chapter, chapter 5 discusses this high priesthood of Aaron, right? The Levitical priesthood. See, this is how we're going to be able to understand what's going on in these chapters instead of being confused. Chapter 5, he's talking about Aaron. Chapter 7, he's talking about how Melchizedek's priesthood is better than the priesthood of Aaron. And we're going to see which one Jesus is aligned with in chapter 7. Alright, so who is Melchizedek? Who is this Melchizedek? Who is this Melchizedek? He's on, uh, you're right, yep, my right too from back there. Moses, uh, Aaron is on the left. Melchizedek is on the right. These are classic images. Oh, the one on the right is. The one on the left, some Bible teacher years ago probably drew it. We're going to be talking about the differences between these and which one is superior. But who is Melchizedek? We know who Aaron is. Most of us are able to you know, tell a lot of things about Aaron, but who is this Melchizedek guy? Well, I was talking to Kyle. Kyle said this could be the most interesting character in all the Bible. We don't know much about him, but he is just this mysterious figure that we find in the Old Testament. In fact, he's only mentioned in three books of the Bible. First of all, in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18. Guess when else? Psalm 110, we already mentioned it. In God's prophecy about Jesus. And guess where else? Book of Hebrews. Chapters 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. That's all we get on Melchizedek. That's all we understand about Melchizedek, but we know from the first few verses that his name, it, it means king of righteousness, king of peace. Let's go ahead and dive into this discussion. I don't have it on the screen for you, so you've got to read for yourself in your Bible. Go ahead and read verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham, there's another Jewish star that hasn't been mentioned yet, 
of whom the great patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Anybody lost? Anybody kind of confused of what's going on about this guy named Melchizedek? What's going on with about the, the whole discussion of Abraham and Abraham giving them tithes and giving them a tenth of the spoils and all the things going on? Well, me too, when I was studying for this. Let's look at what is said about this Melchizedek figure. It says he was priest of the Most High God. What else does it say he was? He was king. King of righteousness. Who else in the Bible is both a priest and a king? That would be Jesus. Jesus Christ is both priest and king. So what are we already seeing about this Melchizedek figure? Ever heard of the phrase type and antitype? Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He is an example, an Old Testament example of what was to come. In fact, that's exactly what it says about him later on, that he was made like the Son of God. But we'll get to that in a second. What is this, what's this idea about Abraham giving him a tithe? Well, guess what? The one who receives the tithe is better than the one who gives it. Abraham had to give Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of the spoils. What did the children of Israel do when it came to uh, the Levites? They gave their tenth of the spoils to the Levites, to the nation of Levi, because they were the priests. Abraham had to do the same thing with Melchizedek. He had to give him a tenth of the spoils, a tenth of everything he had. What does it say about Melchizedek? It says that he was without father, without mother, without genealogy. What, did he just pop out of nowhere one day? Well, guess what? The Bible is silent on that. I think we can conclude he probably had parents unless he was some divinely born figure like Jesus. But Melchizedek, it says, in this passage at least, that he had no father, no mother, no genealogy. The Hebrews writer is trying to relate this figure in the Old Testament to Christ. Jesus had a mother, but he did not have an earthly father. He was from somewhere else. He was, the writer is trying to show how Jesus Christ, his, his real origins aren't on this earth. 
In that way, this Melchizedek figure was made like the Son of God, verse 3, and remains a priest continually. It says he blessed Abraham, verse 7, verse 6, sorry, blessed him with, and blessed him who had the promises. Melchizedek was the one who blessed Abraham, the one who, through which the whole world was to be blessed, right? Abraham, through his seed the whole earth will be blessed. Verse 7, what does it say about the difference between Melchizedek and Abraham? Verse 7, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Well, we automatically would assume that he's talking about Melchizedek being the lesser. But what he's actually saying is Abraham was the lesser and Melchizedek was the better. We're going to talk about why that is the case in a bit. But let's go ahead and read uh, the next section, verses 11 through 25. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? See these two different orders? The order of Melchizedek, the order of Aaron. Verse 12, for the, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, I know that's a long passage. I know that's a long text. But we need to understand what's going on here. And we need to have read it. And not just seen it as, well, that looks difficult. I'll go to when he's talking about faith in Hebrews 11. That's a little bit easier. That's a little bit more palpable. I think that's the word, palpable. What's he talking about in these verses? He's starting out by talking about this difference between the order of Aaron and the order of Melchizedek. And what does he say about it? He says, if the perfection were found in the Levitical priesthood, there would be no need for this new priesthood. 
Obviously, there was something lacking. My professor, David Powell, put it this way, not only is Melchizedek greater than Aaron, but Melchizedek has replaced Aaron with the high priesthood of Jesus, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What a powerful thought this is. Aaron's priesthood has now been replaced by the priesthood of Melchizedek through Jesus Christ, right? Well, why was there a need to replace the priesthood? Why was there a need to replace the priesthood of Aaron through the priesthood of Melchizedek? Verses 11 through 14 tell us that the Levitical priesthood could save no one. It says, The priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of law, for he of whom things were spoken belongs to another tribe, right? This other tribe, the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. We see that the Levitical priesthood was able to save no one. Verses 15 through 19 tells us that the law and the priesthood were incomplete. That's what those verses are saying. The law was incomplete. The Levitical priesthood was incomplete. Why? Because the people in charge of it were incomplete. The high priests themselves were incomplete. The law was made in order so that mankind might be perfect by following these 613 commandments, but what did we find out? No, they can't. They can't follow all these commandments. Only Jesus could. Verses 20 through 22 says, God's oath cannot be broken. Why was the Aaronic, the Levitical priesthood replaced? Why? Because God promised it would be. Verses 20 through 22. God was the one who made this oath. That there would become this priest that would come according to the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. And what is the last reason the Aaronic, the Levitical priesthood was replaced? Verses 23 through 25 tell us it's because man die. Men die. Mere men are not able to live forever, but guess who is? Jesus Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek, reigns forever as high priest. That's why the change was needed. That's why the Levitical priesthood was not enough. And the next passage is going to talk about exactly why this change was better. Verses 26 through 28. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. What does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us that Jesus is holy. Jesus, as the high priest, is holy. He is without spot, without blemish, without sin. It says He is guiltless. He is guiltless. Jesus Christ is guiltless, harmless. He is innocent. It says that He is undefiled. It says that He is separate from sinners. 
says that he is higher than the heavens. What Levitical priest could say that? Jesus Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because he fits the attributes none could ever fit. He fits the role that none could ever fit. Without the need to sacrifice for his own sins. Why? Because he had none. We read about how the Old Testament priests had to first give sacrifice for their own sins and then they could give sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ doesn't need to do that first step. Therefore, when he offered himself as a sacrifice, it was enough. The text says that the law appointed men of weakness, but this oath of God appoints the Son of God who has been perfected. Jesus is better than the high priesthood of Aaron, of the Levites, of the Old Testament. Why? Because he is of the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron. You see what's happening in these two chapters. Jesus Christ is better than the high priesthood of Aaron. Because he is eternal. And that one was temporary. He is better than the high priesthood of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, because he is the sinless mediator. He doesn't spill the blood of bulls and goats on an altar. He spilled his own blood on the altar. And lastly, well, for, well, for last, we see that he is the fulfillment of this oath of God. God made this oath that there would be this high priest that would to come, and that would be Jesus Christ. And lastly, for our application tonight, someone says, Ben, I, I get why this is important for this first century audience. I, I totally understand that the original readers of Hebrews needed to hear this. I get the writer had to dethrone the high priesthood the same way he did to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, to Joshua... I get all that, but what in the world does this matter to me? Why do I care what kind of high priest Jesus is? I, I, I know that He's my Savior. I know that He's my Lord. Is that not enough? No, it's not enough. Why? Because all the way back in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we get our application for us tonight. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You see, we need this high priest. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knows. What does He know? He knows what it's like to be us. 
Chapter 2, verse 17, we've already talked about it. He took on our likeness so that he could be merciful to us. What does he know? He knows what it's like to be tempted. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be weakened. He knows what it's like to feel that there is no escape from the sin, from this temptation. He knows what it's like to lose loved ones. He knows what it's like to be persecuted. He knows what it's like to be hated for no reason, to be talked bad about. He knows what it's like to be hurt, to be disappointed, to be sad. He knows what it's like, whatever you hear tonight, sitting in this auditorium or listening online, He knows whatever you're going through, He knows what it's like. Jesus knows. Not only does He know, not only does He know what it is like, He says He knows how to do it without sin. He experienced all of this without sin, without failing, without faltering, without giving in. But what good does that do to me? Great, good for Him. He, he made it perfect. He had a perfect life, but how does this matter to me? I'm not perfect. I'm not ever going to get there. Great for Him. He was perfect. I'm not going to be. Well, it's because of His perfection. And it is because He is our high priest. It is because He is our mediator. It is because He is our advocate. Because of that, the last verse. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's why it matters. Without Jesus, we could not come boldly before the throne of grace. Without our high priest speaking on our behalf and taking our sin and sacrifices on our behalf, we cannot come boldly before this throne. And because of Jesus being our high priest, we don't have to go through some man. What if you had to go through me or go through Kyle or go through one of the elders to get forgiveness of your sins? Or to talk to God. Some denominations would tell you that. You come in this little booth, you talk in this creepy dark booth, and you walk away with your sins forgiven. Because of Jesus being our high priest, we don't have to rely on someone who fails just like us. We don't have to rely on, on, on someone who has the same flaws, the same errors, the same shortcomings that we do. We don't have to go to someone. We have to go to the one. The one who was perfect. The one who is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We don't have to wait for someone who's through this blood of Levi. We go to the Son of the Almighty God. That's why it matters. That's why this study matters tonight. 
Because without it, where would we be? Because of this Jesus, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. To the throne room of God. The creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, wants to listen to us because of this Jesus. And we can go to Him to obtain mercy and grace in times of need. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. You know, when I was at Freed Hardman, we sang this song. I don't know if we sing it here, in the youth group at least. I know we don't sing it uh, as a congregation. But this song, is, it sums up exactly what we've studied tonight. It says, we place you on the highest place. For you are the great high priest. We place you high above all else. All else. And we come to you and worship at your feet. That's exactly the way we should feel about Jesus Christ. Because He is our high priest, our great high priest. Because He suffered, because He sympathizes. We should place Him above all else. All else. And we should come before His feet and worship. Jesus Christ is indeed better. I'd like to thank you for your attention tonight. Next week we're going to be examining why Jesus provides a better hope in chapter 6. We're going to have Brother James come close us out in a word of prayer. And then we're going to have an announcement after that.